Portal is a 2007 game developed by Valve where the player encounters puzzles that must be solved using the Portal Gun, a device that can create interspatial portals between surfaces. Portal 64 is an open-source rewrite of Portal that can be run on original Nintendo 64 hardware. The game was developed by James Lambert and gained enormous praise as a technical and creative achievement. The project was ended in 2024 at the request of Valve. James joins the show to talk about the process of developing an N64 game, the tool chain for building Portal 64, its physics engine, the design of the N64 cartridge, and much more. Be sure to check out James's YouTube channel to see his work and get updates about his future projects. Joe Nash is a developer, educator, and award-winning community builder who has worked at companies including GitHub, Twilio, Unity, and PayPal. Joe got his start in software development by creating mods and running servers for Gary's Mod, and game development remains his favorite way to experience and explore new technologies and concepts. Welcome to the show, James. How are you doing today? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm doing very well. Awesome. So, you know, we mentioned Portal 64 in that intro. We mentioned, of course, Nintendo 64, which might be a shock to some of our viewers because that is a console that's a fair bit in the past for many of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to know, you know, what is your journey to getting started developing for the Nintendo 64 and how did you come to start making a remake of Portal for Nintendo 64? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up playing the Nintendo 64 and as a kid playing games on it, I wanted to make games. I got really excited about that idea. And so going back to make games on the N64 just always, it appealed to me. And I just was on the internet and noticed like, hey, there's people who are developing tools that you need to make N64 games, but, you know, using modern tools to run on the console now. So I wanted to give it a shot. So I started tinkering around with the modern SDK, which is taking LibUltra, which is Nintendo's proprietary SDK, and running that using modern tools. So you can just use Linux to build and create these ROMs. And so I started tinkering with that. And the first big project I did was a Game Boy emulator that runs on N64. And that kind of got my feet wet. And then they had a game jam for their first game jam for N64 games. So I joined that and had a lot of fun making a game, Telocation Gemini, if you want to find that one. That had a lot of fun making that game. And since then, I've just been involved in making Nintendo 64 content. And every once in a while, I'd get an idea like, I wonder if this grow, I would try things out. And at one point, I'm like, I wonder if we could do portals, right? The portal effect. And I tried it out and it worked and got really excited. Like, I'm going to see how far I can take this. And it just ended up going and getting a lot of momentum to the point where I was actually building out test chambers and building out the game to try to be as close as I can, but on N64 hardware. Perfect, perfect. That's very cool. So there's a couple of questions I guess I wanted to ask off the back of that. So you mentioned that, you know, along the way that you're using, you know, this modern take on LibUltra, which is mm-hmm. Nintendo's SDK, and that you were doing that on Linux. Like what does your developer environment look like? Like what are you using in terms of, you know, text editor? What's the process of right. getting games onto, you know, into a ROM and I guess onto the, the N64? Yeah. So I just use VS code. Cool. And there's no real other, I mean, you could pretty much use any IDE. The person who's maintaining modern SDK, they made it so you can just install it using apt, if you're familiar with Ubuntu or, or I guess Debian-based systems. So you can just add to his repository and just apt install modern SDK, which comes with some examples. And 
it sets up a build environment where then you can just from a make file, say make, and it, it uses a version of GCC that targets the chip set or the architecture of the N64. Mm-hmm. And so it's able to compile the code to object files or in the L format. And then you get the final bundle of code and then you use a linker script to lay out the ROM layout. So that usually comes with, at the beginning, you have to include headers for the N64. If you're familiar with the CIC chip, that's like their copy protection system. It it adds headers for that, for the console to read. And then after that comes the code segment that it lays it out. And the N64, when it boots, will copy the first megabyte of data from the cartridge into the RAM to run the code. And then anything else after that, any assets you want to only be on the cartridge, and then you have to load those manually. And there's a specific address space that you use when access. So you you say, okay, I want to copy from this memory range to this memory range. And the different parts of the console are mapped to different memory ranges. So the the cartridge has a certain range. You say, I want to copy that to memory, to RAM. And so that's kind of how that works. Fascinating. Very cool. So, you know, you mentioned getting involved with N64 because, you know, you had grown up with it and you wanted to make games for it back then and you found a way to do it as an adult. And you mentioned these game jams. Where does Portal come into it? Like, why did you decide to target Portal for this? Was that a, a game jam idea that kind of grew or did it come from elsewhere? Let's see. It was like I was experimenting with graphics techniques. So a few of them were like doing real-time shadows in a technique. I at least had never seen it in a game. Like you typically see the most advanced shadows you see on N64 games, they use shadow maps where they render the character from the perspective of the light. And then they just take that as an image and draw that image on the ground flat. So it really only works well with flat surfaces. I wanted to try out a technique that's similar to shadow volumes where you render the volume where like the back of the volume of the shadow, and then you're able to render content that I'm not describing it very well, but that was one thing I did. And then another interesting graphics techniques, trying to think of other ones I was tinkering with, but I had these ideas and I just wanted to see if it was possible to do the graphics to do a portal effect at all. It was really like where it started out as right. And I wasn't thinking I'd be making portal, but then as I was thinking about, well, what do I want to do to showcase the abilities? Like, well, might as well make it look like portal. Yeah. Right. Cause that's the most like famous game that has a portal effect in it. And it was, it was after seeing how well it actually ran that I was thinking you might actually be able to make the full game out of this because really like you think, okay, the portal technique, it sounds like, oh yeah, that's, that's really advanced. That's something N64 can't handle, but really it's kind of like doing split screen, but the split screens overlap and, and N64 games do split screen all the time. So I figured I would just see how far I could take it. And so I grabbed the assets from the PC game in order to start porting them and, and downsizing them. And this is a bit of a tangent, yeah. but the, in the process of compiling the game, I didn't want to have to like create low res assets that I included with the project. I wanted it to be an automated process as much as possible. So things like images and sounds, yep. they're not part of the repo. Instead, if you want to build the game, you have to get this resources from portal on PC and it can extract the sound effects and then downsize them and recompress them to the format the N64 needs. And that's all done as part of the build process. That's really cool. So I saw that, you know, when I went to play Portal 64 in the lead up to this chat, I saw that, you know, you shipped it as kind of an installer and you point it at your portal installation. And I thought that was, you know, like a copyright hedge, right? Like making sure that the person owns mm-hmm. the portal assets so you're not distributing them. But the fact, so it's actually 
taking the assets that exist on you know my pc in this case and converting them into the low res format that is very cool and what does that process look like so if you're familiar with make files that's what i used and so make file it just what it does it specifies an input file so in this case like the bundle of resources from portal and then you say take these input files and this generates that output file and then you can now tell make this output file that doesn't exist that's derived from these inputs you just say make that file and then underneath that like dependency you can declare the steps the computer needs to take to make that translation and then you can even chain them together so for example portal the source files actually come in these pack files they're a bundle of resources and to make it easier to work with i want to first extract all of those out into separate files so the first step is well, I want to get all the sounds extracted from that pack. So I have a make step that says to generate all of these files, take the bundle and then run this. There's an open source project somebody made that, that can extract the files and extract all the files out. So now you have all the sound effects, but they're the full quality sound effects that are uncompressed. So then I have another make step that says, okay, now that I have that, I want to generate this specific file. And then it corresponds to that file in the portal pack directory. So take that run i think i was using it's called socks it's a audio utility on linux that can manipulate audio files i use that to resample it down to a lower sample rate for memory reasons and then after that i then use a tool that compresses the audio to the adpcm format that n64 uses for its compressed audio so those are all separate steps that it runs in the make file and it generates that output file of here's the audio but then there's another step that will take all of the compressed audio files and then bundle them together into what's called a sound bank for the N64, which is just, it has like a definition of here's all the sounds, but then the actual audio data, because it's so large, is actually streamed from the cartridge. It's not loaded into RAM ahead of time. So just the description of the audio is in RAM. And then you say, I want to play this sound, sound effect. Here's where it lives in the cartridge. Mm-hmm. And the audio system will stream it from the cartridge as it plays. Fascinating. Okay. I guess that brings me to a slightly tangential question, but like, what is in those cartridges, like computing capacity wise? So obviously there's, there's mm-hmm. memory of some kind, but like, right. I know there's, you know, Nintendo cartridges over the years have had various capabilities actually like in the cartridge, like mm-hmm. what is it device wise? Right. So I don't know great detail, but I will say what I do know. So there is the CIC chip, which is their copy protection. And the way that works is the CIC chip, the N64 is able to communicate with that. And based on the content of the the first megabyte of the ROM, it will go and read each byte and then it will ask the CIC chip, okay, here's the data that is in the ROM. And after feeding it the data and doing a a process, it's supposed to spit out a specific number at the end. Mm -hmm. And that number is also saved with the cartridge. And then the N64 hardware also has like a corresponding chip. So they do it in sync. And so when they get to the end of the process, it said, okay, does this number match? And if it doesn't match, then the N64 will actually do a hard reset and prevent the game from booting. So you have to get that CIC to match. So that's one piece of hardware. You have the ROM chip. And I I know that they, in order to, to create aftermarket cartridges, they need to use an FPGA, which adds a little more complexity to just a basic ROM chip. Because most ROM chips, it just works where the console sends out, here's the address I want to read. And then the chip just spits out the data at that address but i know i see this is where I, i'm not certain no, i think fun. n64 they made proprietary rom chips that weren't just so simple i'm assuming those to make it harder to create copies it was 
is the assumption. So that's there, these ROM chips that there's probably something special about them. I don't know exactly what, but then, so you have that, the CIC, the ROM chip, and then you also can have save chips as well. So you have EEPROM, SRAM, and Flash, and they're just different technologies for saving. Oddly enough, the EEPROM chip, if you use that, actually communicates, the console communicates with the EEPROM chip using the same bus that you use to communicate with the controllers. Oh, Not sure why they made that decision, but just to, to send a command to the cartridge to save with EEPROM, you actually go to like the controller bus and say, okay, save as if I'm talking to a controller, but instead it goes to the cartridge. I'm not sure why they do that. But the SRAM, the SRAM is much simpler. It's just, there's a specific address that if you write to that address, it writes to the RAM, or if you read from that address, you're reading from that RAM and that's battery backed. And then flash RAM I think is similar, but it's not battery backed. And there's different timing characteristics. You can't write nearly as fast to the flash RAM as you can to the just SRAM. Very cool. Thank you for breaking that down. Yeah, that's, I'm always, you know, I think when I first realized, you know, playing as a kid that like the save data was was on the cartridge and not on the, the N64, I was like, what is going on in here? They're obviously having no idea uh-huh. about anything at that point. But yeah, I've always been curious. So, you know, you mentioned this point where you decided like, hey, I might as well just make Portal. So mm-hmm. Portal 64, how much of Portal were we talking? How far, how far did it get? So before I took it down, I did manage to get out a, I got Portal First Slice mm-hmm. done officially, which was the first 13 test chambers. And actually, you'll notice it's 13 test chambers, but when you get to the last test chamber, it says 12. That's because Portal, they start at test chamber zero, which I thought was a really right. clever joke because programmers like to start our arrays at zero. And so having Gladys have test chamber zero be the first was just really fitting. But yeah, the first 13 test chambers, which is right after you get the full portal gun. So mm-hmm. you get the full portal gun in test chamber 11, and then in 12, you then get to do your first puzzle with both where you have control over both portals. And then after that, the demo ends. I did manage before I took the project down. I was I already had made progress on test chambers 13 and 14. And they're in kind of an incomplete state. They didn't look great. And there were a few little details like I wanted to fix. But at that point, I got the takedown. So I'm like, I'm just going to release what I have. So if you're able to get the hold of the latest ROM, I think the version 14, that will have those two test chambers as well with some missing details in them. Right. But that's as far as I got. But within those test chambers, though, I was able to get trying to think of like the, the, the list of features. Like I was sure to add you know, like details like the security cameras and you can knock them off the wall. And if you do, Gladys has dialogue lines that she gives. I wanted to have like the little indicator lights on the floor. So when you push a button, they light up and show you like this is connected to that. And just, I was getting to the point where I was at trying to add small details and getting, instead of just having the game be functionally there to actually start to feel like Portal and even be playable to somebody who's never played it before. Because yeah. I was realizing with those indicator lights, I was like, do I put them in? At least, you know, early on, I wasn't sure if I was going to get there. But then I realized, well, if this is your first experience with Portal, Valve, I know they're really heavy with play testing. And so all these little details they added and, and things that they've done in these test chambers, I'm sure were there for very specific play testing reasons. So like I was trying to match as close as I could. So that way I would get the benefits that they discovered in during that process when they were making the game. That makes sense. And you know, when you say you were trying to match it as close as you could, I guess a useful thing for our listeners at this point is to emphasize like what Portal 64 actually was. Cause you know, it's not a port in the sense that you were able to take existing code and put it on there. Like this is, you were writing, you know, mm-hmm. you had no source engine. This was, you know, a complete yes. from scratch rewrite, right? 
Right. Yep. That is correct. Yeah. And I think being able to do it as a complete rewrite meant that I was able to simplify a lot of the code in ways that, so it could run on N64. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think of like what, well, well, for example, I did have to rebuild the levels from scratch. I wasn't able to take their level format and translate it automatically. So that actually was in the repo, copies of low poly versions of the levels. But I had to cut details from some of the levels or I had to do it in a way that was more efficient for the N64. So like if you're familiar with Hammer, which is the, their level editor, if you load up Portal in Hammer, you'll notice it's built out of a bunch of pieces. So like you'll have like, this is a wall section and then you can combine it with other wall sections. And so the level itself is built up of lots of little wall sections that are all pieced together. And instead of doing that, I just had like, well, this is an entire wall. That's one piece. And so it meant I had to do a lot more manual work of just building out the levels exactly what they look like in the final game. But I'd imagine that the reason why that they had it as modular pieces is it was a lot easier for their level designers to iterate on ideas because they had this, this set of tools or, or pieces they could piece together the test chamber. And if they don't like something, they could go change it by adjusting and reusing pieces. So in that iteration process, that's super valuable. But for me, when I was just targeting a specific final product, I could just look at the test chamber and say, that's what it looks like and build it out exactly what it looks like as the final result. And I was able to be more slim and precise and more efficient with my level creation. So that could actually run on N64 hardware. Awesome. Yeah, I think you're right with that theory about Hammer. Actually, there was like a big Twitter discourse going on recently about how like no level editors in any of the big engines have replicated Hammer's ease of iteration because of that kind of like object or like brush-based methodology. Mm -hmm. I think the iteration speed is like notable. So obviously the other big thing about Portal as a game Mm -hmm. is the physics engine. And so I wanted to ask, first of all, you know, I had an N64, but I was quite young. And Mm -hmm. I was looking back through my like memory of... You know, when I think of physics-based gameplay, I think the earliest game where I really think of something like that is another Valve game, and it's Half-Life 2. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of any game on the N64 that really depended on a physics engine in the way that, like, a Portal or, you know, other Valve games of that era did. You know, was there a physics engine comparable to what you've built on the N64 in its time? I don't know of any. Yeah, and the, with the physics engine, there was an open-source project. Yeah, I can't remember what it was called. I, I want to give them credit that I based my implementation on. Mm-hmm. It was a physics engine for N64. It wasn't for N64. It was just an open source oh, cool. physics engine for PC. It was, I want to say something Box. I don't think it's Box 3D. I know Box 2D is a 2D physics engine, but... If you figure out, we'll throw it in the show notes. If you're listening, yeah. let's check the show notes for that physics engine. Yes. So I based mine on that. I actually, the code for, it's called contact resolution, is pretty close just their code. I just ported it to see. Yeah, but so yeah, so collision response, which is just the so I guess like just a quick overview of how like a physics process works. So you have a bunch of movable objects. So I only implemented rigid bodies. So a rigid body is simulated as like a single point. So that one point has mass, and it has velocity and angular velocity and moment of inertia, which is kind of like mass but for rotation. So you have all those attributes on this single point. And that's pretty easy to simulate on its own if you're only applying forces and velocity to that, right? Like you have a pretty basic parabola trajectory for movement, for gravity, like, you know, every step you just say, okay, you have your velocity, add to the position, the velocity times time, and then do the same with velocity to acceleration. And then you're able to get the motion pretty easily. So that's pretty simple to do. But then the difficult thing is you actually wanted to interact with things. And to do that, you have to do collision detection. And so that I wrote 
pretty much myself from scratch. In the collision detection, I have a video that goes into greater detail, but there is a technique called GJK or NEPA. And those are just acronyms based on the names of the people who wrote these papers. Who Very confused. Who, so yeah, not a super memorable, memorable name, but they basically describe a method of, you know, you take two convex shapes and quickly being able to find if they overlap and if they do, what vector can you use to separate them the fastest? Which so a, which direction you should push them apart, basically. So those are very clever algorithms and very efficient, actually, for N64, because it's able to do what it does in very small amount of code and memory. So that's really efficient for the cache on the N64, which is very important because the N64's RAM is slow. So you have that part, and I use that to do what's called contact generation. So you have the point masses, rigid bodies, you put a shape around them, a convex shape. And then with that, you're able to collide it with other shapes to generate contact points. And then you take those contact points and you pass them into the contact resolver. And that's the contact resolver is the part that I didn't really write much myself from scratch. I based my implementation very heavily on that physics engine. But with all that together, you're able to simulate the physics system because what the contact resolution does is it takes that point rigid body and it says, okay, well, if there's, you have this rigid body, but it's touching an object over here and they overlap this much, what force do I need to push on that object to get it to spin or move in a way that they separate? And that's the basic gist of it. My system, I only generate one contact per frame at most, at most one contact per frame per collision. And then I just keep the contacts around until I can tell that they've separated apart. And that single point generation per frame was what let me kind of get away with getting this to run on N64. Yeah. More complicated solutions that try to generate multiple contacts at once. Like the, the physics engine is more stable and it, it works better, but it's more computation per frame. So yeah, and I guess you know that thinking back to, I mean, especially the bits you implemented, but the first portal in general, you know, the physics objects that are moving aside from the player is mostly the companion cube, right? Like there's not mm -hmm. exactly a lot of things. It's a, it's a single rigid body that's contacting with surface geometry most of the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was actually, there's not a lot going on, even though you have realistic physics, there's not a lot of objects doing those physics. So that two other shortcuts I take, one's a common shortcut for all physics and physics engines, which is if an object stops moving for, for a short period of time, you just put it in sleep mode where it no longer is updating the contact resolution every frame. And so you get, you're able to save a lot of time or say, well, this is not moving. I only wake it up if it hits something new, right? Something that's already awake. But so if two objects are sleeping, you can just ignore contacts between those two objects. So that's one optimization, but that's fairly common. And one that is not common is I actually don't calculate moment of inertia correctly. Moment of inertia, try to represent it accurately. Physics engines use a three by three matrix of data. And the reason why you can imagine if you have a really long metal rod, yeah. if you take that metal rod and you try to swing it, it it's harder to swing side to side mm -hmm. than it is if you take that rod and spin it in your hand, right? There's some axes in which it's easier to spin it than others. Okay. So that's moment of inertia. That's why you use a matrix. So that matrix could represent the attribute that it's harder to spin in one axis than the other. But most objects in portal, at least the most common one, the cube, you can actually get away with moment of inertia just being a single number mm -hmm. or a cube because it, there's no axis at which it's 
like maybe that's not entirely true if you spin it from corner to corner a sphere definitely there's only like a sphere it's this it's the same but that treating moment of inertia as a single number instead of a matrix i just said i'm going to try that and see how well the physics works in it i mean it's not noticeable nobody pointed out hey you're not using a matrix for moment of inertia so it really would only show for longer objects clearly so that actually brings me i guess to like one of the things i was really curious about which is you know different physics engines from game to game obviously physics interactions are extremely finicky i think everyone has had you know a bethesda title do some weird yes. physics stuff to them or whatever and so you know when these are physics-based puzzles i imagined well i want to know i guess whether getting the physics feel exactly right was like important for making any of the puzzles work or whether you had mm-hmm. to like you know you're implementing physics but you know there are particular properties of the source physics engine like were you trying to chase any of those at any point so for the most part just using the correct value for gravity and then trying to match the same velocities as much as I could seemed to work pretty well. And then just adjusting numbers till till it felt right, not necessarily till what they were using. I know like at one point I realized that in portal, they actually add a invisible platform in front of portals that are on walls. So if you're, so that way, cause if you go through a portal, you can kind of go out of the portal a little ways before right. you fall. Okay. And you make use of that in some test chambers. So I had to implement that to get a certain gap in test chamber, I think it was 10, where mm-hmm. portal appears on the wall, you put another one and you go through it and you're able to kind of clear a small gap. And in order for me to do that without jumping to match the original game, I had to add that ledge. And once that ledge was in, it just worked. Right. So for the most part, it really wasn't a lot of tweaking because I think they followed regular paths. I did do screen Mm-hmm. recordings of playing portal and they had the feature where you can turn on where it it shows the position cool. on the screen so i was able to take that data right down like do a spreadsheet where i say okay here's the position that it tracked frame per frame and then get a a trajectory and then i was like okay well if given this trajectory this is how much acceleration it's getting and i was able to kind of figure out okay well i think that and then I, I have the correct values and matching that so mm-hmm. there was a little bit of that but really in terms of getting the physics to feel right, I mostly just, as it's kind of winging it, like an, another thing I had to do is when a fast object, like a cube, if it's moving really fast and hits, hits, hits a wall or a button, actually, in this case is where it's important, you want it to lose a lot of energy because you don't want it bouncing off the button. You want it to fall, hit, and then just stay. So I actually... There's actually two modes of collision detection in, in Portal 64. One is for fast-moving objects, and one is for mo- objects that are already touching. So for fast-moving objects, I use swept collision. So if you imagine you take the shape of the object, let me see, you have the object where it started and then where it ended up. And then you draw a convex shape around both of those. And so now you have this long stretched object and you do collision with that object against level geometry. So that way it can't tunnel through walls. And when I'm in that mode, after detecting a collision, I'm actually able to just say, okay, you hit here. And then, and then I can adjust the velocity as, as well when resolving that collision. When a box hits a button, I just, I cut its velocity. Right. So it ideally will stay on the button and not just yeah, bounce off. Flying around. Yeah. Interesting. So I guess one kind of like a, a little physics detour. So, you know, on your YouTube channel, which is great, by the way, you do some really, really wonderful explainer videos. You did a little bit of an exploration in tackling like a question about portal because portal one didn't have moving portals, right? And you wanted right. to solve what happened in this case. Can you tell us briefly about that? Yeah. So I was on Reddit 
there's a discussion about what would happen with portals and with moving portals. And I just thought it just surprised me how many people supported what I thought was, at least to me, seemed like the wrong answer. <laughs> and so I'm like, this isn't right. I need to explain why why port moving portals would work the way they do. Right. And so I decided, well, I'm I'm working on a portal physics engine. Let's just implement moving portals. And so I did as a kind of a way to show, look, this is how it would work. And yeah, I mean, I did that video and then another follow-up video. And I feel like I pretty clearly explained my case, but there's still people who disagree. Just as a side note, right. when talking with Valve about whether or not they'd let me continue the project, in that conversation, one of the guys who originally worked on Portal 1 was just telling me that he really thought the game was really cool and he was really impressed with it. And then he also chimed in and said, yeah, the Portal Paradox, I tried to explain to people why they would shoot out. I just want to point out the guy, one of the guy who originally worked on Portal 1 physics engine agrees that the cube would shoot out instead of stay stationary after coming out the other side yeah, so I'm now for that video and put a big like valve stamp of approval on, on the yes <laughs> awesome so we'll get to that conversation and you know what happened to valve very shortly but i guess before we move on to that just while we're talking about the technical stuff we've spoken a lot about the physics and other method like other areas of implementation that were there any other technical challenges that you know were particularly hard to overcome or that surprised you in going about this project one challenge with n64 is the resolution is so small okay that details just really get mangled especially really small things there are plenty of objects in portal like the radio antenna for example i had to make that thicker to get that to look right and it just just generally the challenge of low resolution i guess both in terms of the screen size but also depth buffer resolution there's a lot of z fighting artifacts in portal 64 like it just i was making improvements i was making things better there but that was just kind of a limitation of the system that and the fact that the graphics pipeline uses fixed point numbers for its 3D calculations, which limits the range quite a bit on what values you can use. And that was leading to some some graphical issues in some of the larger test chambers with okay. the portals. And so that was kind of a big constraint that I had. I always I always had to keep trying to adjust things to make it work within those constraints. Awesome. Yeah, I guess the resolution must be particularly tricky as well when you're like looking at things that are also for portals that are even like tinier than otherwise, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned a couple of times that Portal 64, you've had to take it down. You mentioned you have call with Valve. Can you run us briefly for that situation, which I'm saying knowing that you have a very good YouTube video about this. So <laughs> don't want to make yeah. your, your entire video, but yeah, a brief overview yeah. would be great. Yeah. So somebody from, from Portal reached, from Valve reached out and uh, got in conversation with them about the project. And I asked them, you know, what could I do to officially get your permission to finish this project? Because I wanted to have, I mean, I was going to keep going until I was told to stop, but I, ideally I just have their permission because then I wouldn't have to worry about that anymore, right? Like they would, they could say, oh, yeah, I could be able to finish this project. And because like not knowing whether or not you'd finish, like I didn't want to put another year or two into the project and have it stopped right before it was done. So I was, I was talking with some of their lawyers and they're asking me some questions about, you know, okay, how are you? How is this rolled out? How do you distribute this to, to people? And, and then they asked the question, is there anything that Nintendo wouldn't like, basically? And unfortunately, the, the answer to that was, well, I'm using LibUltra, which is their proprietary SDK. Mm -hmm. And they heard that, they basically said, okay, yeah, we can't support it. And I'm sure it's, you know, they, they have to cover their legal 
basis. Like it's if they had an co- internal conversation about whether or not, you know, they would let me continue this project and they say, yeah, sure. Just if Nintendo gets mad, then we'll shut it down. Like, I feel like that, that would be like a record that could go to court if Nintendo decided they wanted to sue Valve, right? They'd be, look, they, they let this person continue this project using our proprietary SDK. And well, maybe I'm not a big enough target for Nintendo, Valve certainly is. Yeah. So to Valve, that's like, they're just not going to go there. And so I did a follow-up question ask, okay, well, if, if I could port, the, to port it to LibDragon, which a LibDragon is an open source, non-proprietary SDK for N64, would they, you let me continue it? And they, they, they discussed it a little further. I'm not sure what was said there, but they came back and said that they don't really want to have to worry about monitoring this project or like, I'm sure it basically it's just to them, it's a liability and a cost potentially to track it. Right. So they're, and they're not, there's not really much benefit to them. So they're like, just to cover themselves because Nintendo's involved, they're just going to, they just said, no, we're not going to yeah. allow this project to continue. So I understand that. Like I figured like it was a long shot, but I figured if, if this project were to be completed, it would require both Nintendo and Valve agreeing to it, sure. which would be a harder sell than just a single one of those companies. Yeah, absolutely. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, seeing that whole situation and also, you know, seeing it's not an uncommon situation, particularly, you know, Nintendo have a bit of a reputation for this kind of thing. And, you know, hearing mainly from you that these N64 jams are, you know, such a common thing. I guess, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you as both an N64, you know, hacker, but also someone who's in that community, like, how do you approach, you know, being creative and being a developer on these consoles with that kind of always looming threat that, you know, the work will last a little bit and then might have to disappear for whatever reason. Right. Well, I like getting the work done. I like people being able to play the ROMs and the things I make. That's definitely part of it. But I feel like just the, the, the process of creating is a lot of fun and sharing it with people and them being able to see it is part of the fun. So, it, I mean, ideally, it'd be great to have, have a final product that I could distribute freely and not have to worry about that. But I think the the process and kind of the exploration is 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 part of the fun for sure. And this, I imagine, is a bit of a tricky question to answer. But, you know, if there are people listening to this who are like, you know, I want to have a go at developing on the N64, but I am scared of, you know, someone coming after me. Do you have right. any, what are the obvious things that people can do to avoid falling foul of trouble? And I imagine LibDragon mm-hmm. is a good place to start rather yes. than using LibUltra. Exactly. Yeah. If, if you want to make N64 games and have any chance at, at being able to be successful and maybe even potentially monetizing, like selling Live Dragon. You want to use Live Dragon. That's not Nintendo's proprietary code. And then be sure that you're just not you're not using an, any Nintendo branding. So like, as nice as it would be to have the N64 logo, you know, pop up when you start a game, unless you want to try to lay low and just hope Nintendo doesn't crush it, don't do that. Don't put Nintendo branding on your any boxes or cartridges. Make sure it's free from any of that branding. Use Lib Ultra, and I think not legal advice. <laughs> I think that those are just things you can do to best avoid Nintendo's ire. But because I know people have sold commercial games, aftermarket games for NES mm-hmm. and they've got, they've, they've succeeded there. And I think it's just as long as you avoid the branding, right? I think you'll be in the clear. So yeah, that'd be my advice there. GB Studio, like the community around GB Studio of making Game Boy games, there's definitely been commercial games for the Game Boy from GB Studio as well. So there's definitely, mm-hmm. yeah. That's a very interesting example because I think the Game Boy, the Nintendo came with a pretty clever way to protect against copies or, or unlicensed games in which 
when you put the game in and you boot it and that Game Boy logo that shows up, that's actually part of the copy protection because the way they have it set up is the Game Boy to first run some code that's supposed to display the Game Boy logo. And it tries to check if it's not the Game Boy logo, we won't boot the game. So that was their copy protection. And the idea is if you create an unlicensed game, well, you have to show the Game Boy trademark. So they'd be able to go after you legally, right? Because that was a requirement to get it to boot. Well, hackers have since figured out ways to get around that where you can show any as some other logo that's not Game Boy and no, still have it boot. Gosh, or whatever. So right? yeah, that was their way they got around that. It's so these methods are so ingenious and so technically cool. It's just such a shame the category of like thing they are doing with that. Right. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that, that I think again, heavily not legal advice, but it is, you know, knowing about, you know, there is a non-proprietary SDK out there is I mm-hmm. think super helpful. And you know, you mentioned some of the game jams that, you know, you got your start in. Is there any particular events or like communities that you would point people to to get started if they were looking to do that? Yeah, there's an N64 brew Discord server. Cool. That's where I jumped in to get started and a lot of great resources there and that Discord server alone is going to have uh, it has a page where a bunch of links where you can get started and people create like open source tools to like compile assets to run on N64. And yeah, really, I think that'd be a good place to start. Awesome. And I guess the last question I have for you, well, almost last, I've got a bit of personal curiosity as well. Are there any developers who are making N64 content or content creators that you'd recommend that folks check out? I mean, there's obviously Ks. If, you've, if, if you're familiar with me, you're probably familiar with Ks. You're doing really cool stuff, modding Mario 64. I don't know of anything that's like you could go see on YouTube. I mean, there's the Smash Remix project, which they're adding new characters to Super Smash Brothers 64, which it's just, I'm wildly impressed with that project. That one's really cool. The Super Smash community, like across the generations is unhinged and very impressive to me. Like the Melee community, especially. I'm in uh-huh. every level of Smash community. They're so dedicated to that game. Oh yeah, that's a great project. And I know on the Discord server, I'm seeing people... Some somebody's trying to demake Five Nights at Freddy's for N64. There's an occasion that you just see people posting updates from their own personal projects, their own original games, and there's a few that are are making some pretty cool progress yeah. on that you'll you'll see on the Discord server. I don't know of any places to send you to actually test it or to to, to see the project, but certainly if if any of those projects do finish and they release, I I'll probably give a shout out on my channel to them because I mean they're they're very very impressive projects to be doing solo developer so awesome but in the meantime the n64 brew discord is the place to hear about them yeah that's what i would recommend awesome and then yeah my one bit of curiosity and i've been wondering this since watching your youtube videos what mm-hmm. is the red console behind you is that a wii oh, u or or is or no. a modded switch right it's let me go let me grab it <laughs> so it's n64. actually an n64 portable <laughs> wow okay yeah cool. so like, yeah, as it came towards the camera, Sonny was like, that is bigger than I thought it was. Yeah, oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's been a while since I fired it up. So for folks so. listening, this is like, if you imagine a Steam Deck sized device, well, a Steam Deck looking device, but it is an entire N64. Large. <laughs> Incredible. Battery's dead, so yeah. I won't be able to yeah. fire it up. But I made this around the time I started getting the brew development, which right. which is kind of janky in a lot of ways. You'll, you'll notice that the, the body's made out of wood because I didn't have a good 3D printer at the time. Yeah. No, I think making it out of wood is awesome. That's like, bring bring back wooden handhelds. Yeah. <laughs> I realized, you know, having seen you bring out a piece of hardware that you've been working on, I forgot to ask a very important question. Now that Port 64 is offline, what are you working on next? 
Right. So I, there's still a few ideas for just tinkering with uh, N64 hardware that I'm, I'm working on. Like I'm right now, I am trying to get the Oculus DK1 to work on N64. So you'd be able to play a virtual reality game on N64. I'll probably have a few other random ideas like that, but I am starting a new game project. I'm still in the early phases of just kind of making ideas and getting kind of the foundation set up. Since I'm using Live Dragon, I kind of have to rewrite a lot of engine code. I'm not just going to be able to have a good starting point like I do for my Live Ultra based yeah. game projects. So it still may be a few months before I even have like a really basic prototype to show. But yeah, I'm starting on a new game project there. Awesome. Cool. Well, James, thank you so much. I've definitely learned a lot and I'm sure our viewers and listeners have as well. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you. Thank you.